0: The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. We're going to continue this morning in our series in 1 Corinthians. And uh, we're going to be in chapter 5 today. And we come to a difficult passage this morning. And this is difficult to preach, difficult to hear. And um, if you're new, please come back next week. Um, I think the best course is just to read this whole passage just in one, uh, one deal. So just rip the Band-Aid off and just get that part over with. So let's go ahead and read 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Are you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all mean the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or, or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Wow, it's a lot to take in. So we have all ages in here, so I will keep this PG, but the overarching issue in this passage is how should the church handle someone when they're walking and living in sin? You know, it's, it's interesting. People all week have apologized to me for, they're like, we're sorry." You get the passage where there's this really horrible relationship you have to talk about. And I said, guys, that's actually the easy part. Everyone knows that's wrong. But the hard part is... We're doing a sermon on church discipline, which isn't controversial at all today in the church, is it? And so this is really a a passage on church discipline, and many of you may be, may be surprised there is such a thing as this. But if you understand our relationship to the Father, you can understand how our relationship should be inside the church. And so we look at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 and 6, where the writer says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So there are some, some kids and some students out there I know. And I know that um, for you younger people, how many of, your, of you have, have your parents ever said to you um, when they discipline you, I'm doing this because I love you? Raise your hand. You've heard that before, right? Yes, you've heard that. And you don't like when they say that, do you? It doesn't sound like it works, does it? But we know with a parent that, that a parent disciplines because they, they love. And, and God has the same kind of posture towards us. He disciplines us because he loves us. And so just like a father would do, this is how the heavenly father also responds to us. So it might seem unloving, but God does this. And sometimes he does this through the church. Sometimes he uses the church as a, a tool of discipline in his own hands. So what is the alternative to that? W- w- would we say that a, a, an alter- or a better option would be indifference? I mean, if, if a parent or even if God did nothing when we walk off in our own ways, that's indifference. And that's not what I would call loving. So not to insult your intelligence, but... When you just look at the word disciple, you can see the word discipline in the word disciple. It's the same root word. And there's really two types of discipleship. There's formative, so this is discipling through instruction. It's what happens on Sunday morning here, what happens whenever we're meeting our normal meetings throughout the week in homes, whether here at the church or somewhere else. But this is instruction. And then there's also corrective, which is to disciple through correction. So someone's erring off or walking off into sin or even theological error. And it's, it's, the, it's God's way of bringing someone back. And sometime he, sometimes he uses the church to do that. So what do we do when someone claims Christ, but they are walking in willful and unrepentant sin? Not struggling with it, but walking in it. So Paul's focus here seems to be not just the couple and their sin, but the church's reaction to it. If you read the passage, Paul is really addressing the church. He's saying, yes, this thing happened in the church, but I'm really talking to you, the church in Corinth, about how you're responding to this couple that's living in sin. I know we can think of modern day parallels to this and how Christians or the church has compromised with the culture. We can think of how the church has compromised on LGBT issues or Rampant divorce taking place in the church or couples living together before marriage. In the last two years, I have had to say no to more weddings than I have said yes to. Because couples come to us and they, they both claim Christ and they say, want to get married? And we ask them those hard questions and they say, no, 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 we don't want to do that. And we, we, we graciously try to say, well, this is God's vision for marriage. Let's do it the right way to honor and glorify him. And many times, more often than not, they'll say, not interested. And listen, I, I like doing weddings. I really want to do weddings. But we see lots of compromise in the church. And sometimes we see compromise at the, even the organizational level in some churches. And so this is happening there in Corinth. A Christian writer once said, the arms of tolerance have swung so far open that they are coming back around to choke us. And I think we see that today. It's true of many Christians, true of the church today. And so until this point, Paul has dealt with divisions in the church concerning leadership. But there is one topic they are unified about in Corinth, and it's tolerating sexual sin. There is no disunity there. They're on the same page. It's, it's two thumbs up. It is approved And it's a public thing in this congregation. And so we're going to walk back through this passage together. And you really see the purpose of church discipline as we walk through this passage. And this is, I got this outline from Jonathan Lehman from his book by the same name. So glance back down at just verses 1 and 2 again. And we see in that, those couple of verses, that discipline aims to expose. If we're going to repent and turn from sin, there has to be and, exposure. and none of us like being exposed. None of us like our, like our sin being exposed. So this is not a secret situation. Paul's all the way over in Ephesus, and he knows about it. So the church in Corinth for sure knows about it, if he knows about it all the way over in Ephesus. So what kind of sin are we talking about? Well, this man has taken his father's wife. It's most likely that this is not the man's biological mother, but it's his stepmom. The father is probably dead, and if he's not dead, they're probably not talking. They're not on speaking terms. So this would be a violation of Leviticus chapter 18, where for Israel, God forbids relations among immediate family members, whether related by blood or through marriage, but right before God lists off these sins that Israel's not supposed to do, he tells them why. Why? They're not supposed to do it. And he says, you're not to look like the nations, the other nations. You're supposed to do things differently. You're supposed to live out even your sexuality differently. And he says this to Israel in Leviticus 18. So whenever we think about this happening in the church, right, As we think about Israel and how they're supposed to live in front of the other nations, God's called us as the church to be distinct, to look different in front of the culture, and so often we don't. Now, you know how tolerant Corinth was. We've talked about that the last few weeks, how tolerant they were as a city, but also as a church in that city, and they would have, just the city would have a long list of things they would approve of, and we would expect that out there in the world, but this is all happening inside the church. And this particular sin is so obvious that even the unbelievers can get this right. And Paul says, you're you're more tolerant than the unbelievers in your city. You know, everybody lives by a moral standard. Even the unbeliever lives by a moral standard. Even someone that says to you, you know, the church is too self-righteous, too rule-based, too just... Pent up, especially in certain areas of how we live, and so you need to loosen up. Some even that person will have a line, and they will say, "No, no, 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 no. That's that's wrong." They may not know why they think it's wrong, but everyone's got a line. Everyone's got a morality and a moral standard. Usually, Christians are seen as the intolerant ones, but even unbelievers have things they will not tolerate. Everyone's got a line. So what are some sins that would be condemned in our culture today? You know what what some of those sins would be. So imagine if these were happening here at TBC and embraced. So not just let's sweep it under the rug and not talk about it, but they were publicly embraced and celebrated in this church. That's what was happening there in Corinth. Even the unbelievers are looking at the church saying, that's grotesque. How can they do that? How can they approve of that? And I think we see the same problem today in the church. Paul says they should be grieving and mourning this sin, but they're arrogant, they're prideful, they are boasting in their tolerance, and they're saying things like, look how accepting and gracious we are. And I think you hear this in many churches today. The problem today is that we see the church as just isolated individuals attending, attending a church service. We've talked about that recently, how many of us approach church, like it's just, you just come into a church service, you attend a church service, and maybe you go attend a small group, and you just, we just see ourselves as these isolated people that are just attending things, and that's the church. We don't see ourselves as truly interconnected like a human body. We see our, we see. Our sin is our business, and you know, their sin is their business. I'm not going to get into their business. They shouldn't get into my business. But if we're, if we're meant to be a body, when one part of the body is sick, the whole body is sick. If my arm has an infection, the whole body works together to rid the infection. Or if my body has cancer, the first step, of course, is to expose it. But if not, it leads to the body dying. The body dies. So discipline always aims to expose. And Paul isn't just exposing this man's sin, but he's exposing their acceptance of it. You see, sometimes sin needs to be exposed, not just at the personal level, but at the corporate level. Many years ago, I worked at a church in college, and um, I'll never forget this one sermon that was so powerful to me, where the pastor of that church, he stood before the church, he preached this passage, 1 Corinthians 5. He opened his Bible, he read the passage all the way through, he closed his Bible, and he looked at the audience and he said, it is actually reported to me that there is sexual immorality among you. And you could have heard a pin drop. And he went on to talk about how, I guess there had been some things happening in their singles ministry at that time, and it had gotten so bad that he felt like he needed to address it in front of the whole church. He didn't mention names or anything like that, but it had risen to a corporate level where he felt like, I need to talk to the church about this. And so he did. And this is what Paul's doing here. This is a public sin, and Paul's addressing it corporately for them as a body. You see, systemic sin needs to be exposed, but we don't do so self-righteously. I like what... Warren Wearsby says, he says, church discipline is not a group of pious policemen out to catch a criminal. Rather, it is a group of broken-hearted brothers and sisters seeking to restore an erring member of the family. You know, when I read this, I felt conviction because I've never been involved necessarily at the, the highest level of a church as far as carrying out church discipline in that way, and it's being talked about here. But what I have done are some of the individual conversations of pursuing students or pursuing a leader and, and having those, some of those hard conversations. And I will say that there have been times, many times, where I have been, had the wrong tone, the wrong attitude as I've approached someone. Because what can happen is you can be grieved by someone's sin, but if they just continue down that pathway and they can continue down that road, grief can turn into anger. And now you're just angry. And you just, you just can't wait to go and have that conversation. So it, the, the point is, we don't, we don't want to be, be a people who enjoy this kind of thing. This should not be an enjoyable endeavor. We're not to be a pious policeman who just is glad to go and confront someone in this way. But the picture and the tone should be someone who's, you're going to a family member and pleading with them begging with them, often through tears, saying, please, come back and return. That should be the tone that, that goes over this whole thing. Look at verse three. Paul says, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So discipline always aims to warn. Now Paul isn't with them physically, but he is spiritually. And he says, if I were there, he says, if I were there, I would have already pronounced judgment on this man. You know, sometimes you just, you hear about something and you just, you just know. Like, you don't need to hear another side of the story. Paul doesn't need to hear, well, let me hear this man's take. Let me hear the woman's take and hear their side of the story. That's not needed here. Paul hears the situation. He says, I don't need any more information. I already know what I think about that. And you should too, church in Corinth. So this has been a public sin. And so Paul is saying to deal with it publicly. Now, many times it doesn't, it doesn't reach this point. If someone is living or walking in sin, a friend or a leader should, should go to that person, should meet with them. And if they don't repent, you, you take someone with you like Matthew. the book of Matthew talks about. And these things should be happening in your own communities. Like if you If you know people that you're friends with that are living and walking in certain kinds of sins, then it's it's your role as a brother or sister in Christ to go to that person and have that initial conversation and then maybe another conversation and then maybe another conversation that should be the role that we're we're playing in each other's lives in the body of Christ and there should be many individual meetings before we get to the scene that's playing out here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 usually after what i have found is usually after a couple of conversations like that they might either turn and repent or they might just leave and say, you know what? I feel judged. I'm not coming back here ever again. And we don't want that. That's not our goal. But that's what happens sometimes. Our hope is always repentance and restoration. I'll say more about that in a moment. But Paul uses this really strong phrase. He says, you are to deliver this man over to Satan. Now, what does that mean? And how is that loving? You know, many, many people try to live between God's kingdom and our own kingdom. We want the best of both worlds, don't we? In Colossians chapter one, verse 13 and 14, Paul writes, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You know, there's another name for our own kingdom, and it's this domain of darkness that Paul talks about in Colossians chapter one. And there's not a whole lot of in-between between the domain of darkness and the kingdom of the sun. There's really only two kingdoms in which we can live. And if there are only two kingdoms, this man in Corinth is living in a domain of darkness while claiming to be part of Christ's kingdom. And so to hand someone over to Satan is to simply match their physical reality with their spiritual one. So it's when the church comes to someone and says, based on your life that is just characteristically unrepentant, you've got this posture of not repenting and it's this long pattern that we're seeing. And based on that response, we can no longer affirm you as a believer. This does not mean that someone can lose their salvation. We don't believe that. But it is someone who may have never been saved. And they are still in the domain of darkness. But maybe trying to live in both worlds, but really, there's no in-between here. They're still in the domain of darkness. So Paul is saying to this church to have some real harsh words with this, with this couple and from the outside, this might look and feel unloving. And some might even say it's not Christlike. I've heard that before with someone. You have those hard conversations and someone says, well, well that doesn't sound like something that Jesus would do. That's not the Jesus I read about in the New Testament. But look back at verse 4. Look how closely Paul ties Jesus into this whole thing. He says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus with the the power of the Lord Jesus. You are to deliver this man to Satan. So where is Jesus in all of this? It sounds like he's right there. Discipline is a a warning. But if it feels judgmental, it's to keep someone from final judgment. So discipline's aim is also to save Back in verse 5, after Paul says to deliver this man to Satan, what does he then say? I think the most important phrase in this whole chapter, he says, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Well, how does, how does that work? Well, about a month ago, when they told us that schools were going to start up in early September, which was a news to us. So we decided to take the family to a little a beach trip in South Padre. So we went to South Padre for the last week of August, kind of a last minute vacation before the summer ended with the kids. And my daughter really had this dream to like do a surfing lesson. And I just thought, well, let's just give it a shot and see what happens. So the whole family decides to go. We call this little shop there in South Potter, we get the, the guy to come out, and he takes us out this little part of the beach with these four long boards. And I thought, the chance of this happening, going well for us, is pretty small, but we'll give this a shot. So we start doing this, and he actually got my kids up on surfboards pretty quick in the little tidal area there at the beach, and they're having fun. And I said, listen, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm paying you money, so you spend your time with them. I'm going to go out here and try to just figure it out. And so I go out a little bit further out into the waves and um, where I can still stand up, and I'm trying to learn how to do this, and it's not going very well, but I'm trying. And so after a half hour or so, he says, hey, Dave, I think I can take you out further um, where those other breakers are, and I think I could get you up on the board, and you could probably do this pretty quickly. And so I said, well, I have a question. Is that water out there over my head? And he goes, yes, red flag number one. And so we decided to go out there, and he's just swimming next to the board, and I'm paddling out there to this further out spot. And this was right around the time when that hurricane came through the Gulf. And the hurricane wasn't close to us, but it was creating swells on the beach there in South Padre, just enough to make you nervous. And there was a pretty strong rip current, especially that day. But the wave was a little, little bit bigger than normal, so we're going to surf these things. So um, we get out there, and he's trying to, show me how to do and trying to show me how to catch certain waves, and I'm attempting but not being very successful. And I almost stand up on one, and I fall off the board, and, uh, and of course, I wipe out. And then um, the next, now I'm in water that's over my head, and the board's about eight feet away from me. But I'm attached to it with a leash, but waves are just hitting me now, just one after the other. I'm trying to get back out to where he is. And so having some trouble. And so this one wave hits me and snaps the leash, and the surfboard just goes toward the beach. And so now I'm in water over my head. Waves are crashing down upon me. And there's a rip current trying to pull me further out to sea. And so he starts kind of swimming back to shore. He's right next to me. and, And I just have this moment of panic. Like when you look at the beach and it looks so far away, And I feel like I'm being pulled further out into the ocean. And I see a lifeguard truck drive by. And all these things just coalesced into this moment where I almost shouted out, help, help me, I'm drowning. And then I look over at this guy and I'm not, I don't want to, you know, lose my pride here. But I I look at the guy and I just go, hey, man, I think I need some help over here. And he goes, really? Really? And so he comes over and he he goes, hey, turn over on your back. You're going to be okay. And he's kind of got his hand under my back as we're kind of going back to the shore and I'm doing the whole backstroke, going back to the shore. Get back to the beach and I was wife and kids. I'm like, did you guys see me surfing out there? Right, pretty good, huh? And so, but in that moment, when did I ask for help? When I felt helpless. So for you and I, whenever we are walking in sin, when are we most likely to ask for help? It's when we feel completely helpless. Discipline might feel like we're pushing you out to sea, sending you off into the chaos and turbulence of your own choices, but it's so you'll cry out for help and your soul might be rescued. This past week in our staff meetings, I heard stories Again, not to mention names, but there are stories of people in this church over the years that have walked off into sin, and leaders here have pursued them over and over again, and some have come back and turned and repented. And I think for some, only when they feel the full weight of their decisions will they see a need for Jesus. Discipline should always bear the tone, not of a courtroom, but of a family pleading with them. Pleading with them in this way. Look down at verse at verse six. Paul says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened, for Christ our Passover Lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Discipline also aims to protect. So why all this talk about bread and leaven? Don't worry, this is not going to become a cooking show. But when you think about, why does Paul use this image of of bread and leaven as he talks about this, this sin issue in the church? If you remember the last plague in Egypt, Pharaoh wouldn't set Israel free, so what does God do? God sends one last plague to take the firstborn out of every household there in Egypt, and Israel's protected as an act of faith if they were to place blood on the lamb, on, on, blood of a lamb on the doorposts of their homes, and God would pass over them and not take their firstborn. So each following year, Israel celebrated freedom from Egypt by celebrating this thing called Passover. So during that time they would eat unleavened bread. So what's unleavened bread? Well, many people say that leaven is yeast, and that's almost accurate. Um, yeast is what we use today to create the same situation, but, but leaven was not the same thing as yeast. Yeast wasn't common back then. So to get bread to rise, what they would do is they would make a batch of dough, unleavened bread, and they would take out a little lump, and they would set it aside. And they would eat their unleavened bread for Passover to commemorate being set free from Egypt. They had to leave in haste. There wasn't time for the bread to rise. So that was part of the celebration of celebrating their freedom from Egypt. So they would take out this little lump of dough and set it aside and let it sour and let the bacteria grow. The next batch they would make, they'd put, once Passover is finished, they'd put the lump in a new batch of dough and the bacteria would spread throughout the dough, and it would begin to rise. And they would do this all throughout the year, take another lump and set it aside. And as the bacteria begins to accumulate throughout the year, they would use this bacteria, this lump, to cause the bread to rise like you see here. And so this is what Israel would do. And so every year, every year whenever they would, um, they'd reboot this whole process during Passover, and it helped help them remember how they fled to Egypt. So quickly, and it symbolized their freedom from Egypt. And for a Christian, it began. It, it became. Uh, it came to symbolize their freedom from sin. And so Paul draws this parallel. He is saying, just as the bacteria spreads through the dough, so sin, when it's not dealt with, is going to spread through the church body. So imagine if a man came here and he left his wife and he got a girlfriend. And he says to the leadership, he said, hey, can I bring my my girlfriend to church? And if the leadership said, yeah, sure, go ahead, no problem. Can you imagine the the ripple effects that 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 sin would cause in the body of Christ? How it would hurt that woman and affect other people in the church? It would infect the church. So there is... There is a point at which it's not just the person who's sinning, but we as a body, we as a church, we sin as well. We bear responsibility. To allow the leaven to to infiltrate would be sin for the church. And in in verse 7, Paul says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Now, how can Paul say that? I mean, after all they've done as a church, how can Paul... Look at the church in Corinth and say that you are really unleavened. What well, do you see what he's doing here? Paul is pointing to the identity that they have in Christ, the Corinthian Christians. He is saying that right now, right now, you look like this. Right now, you look like this. You're puffed up with arrogance. You're bloated up with sin, but your real identity is that is that you're unleavened. Your identity is pure, and sanctified, and holy. That's your true identity. I think some of you in here today you need to hear this because if you know your if you know Christ, your identity is unleavened. Your identity is holy and sanctified and pure. And just as Paul does here, we exhort you to live from your. Identity and, you, and that you become who you are in that identity. Why allow the leaven of sin to remain and the infection of sin to remain? So, discipline always aims to protect the church, it aims to save, but it also aims to protect. Now, I know all this talk about sin and church discipline can sound a bit depressing, so let's not gloss over verse 8. I want you to read verse 8 again where it says, let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So these Jews were to celebrate their deliverance from Egypt with no leaven. And in a similar way, Christians, we get to celebrate our deliverance from sin by not living and walking in the very things from which we've been set free. So there are many Christians that still see the Christian life as missing out. We we still see the Christian life as this joyless existence, but we need to see the whole thing as a festival, and the whole thing as a celebration of our freedom from sin. And so, what happens when Christians live this out in this way? Well, the world begins to see the church differently. David Pryor writes, "The world is waiting to see such a church—a church which takes which takes sin seriously." which enjoys forgiveness fully, which in its time of gathering together combines joyful celebration with an awesome sense of God's immediacy and authority. And that's how God wants us to live out our experience in the church. Look down at verse nine. Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. So discipline always aims to present a good witness for Jesus. So Paul Paul addressed these issues in a previous letter, but they misunderstood what he was saying. When he wrote to them, he was talking about someone who claimed Christ, but they're walking in sin. There are some Christians that think we're supposed to isolate from unbelievers. Listen, you, you should have friends that are not believers. How else can we live on mission if you don't? But many times we reverse this. We get this backwards. We're, we're soft on sin in the church, but harsh with the world. Can, can you believe what's going on out there? How dare they? How dare they what? Live like an unbeliever? So in the church, we, I think we get this backwards. We, we're so harsh on the unbelieving world, but then we're, we're kind of okay with ourselves and tolerate some things in ourselves. So God's going to deal with the unbeliever, but we are called to deal with sin on the inside. And listen, if you're, if you're a skeptic, you're not yet a believer, not yet a follower of Christ, I know this can be a hard discussion to hear. This sounds like it should be like an inside conversation today. So if you're not yet, if you're not yet a believer this discussion can seem difficult, but what happens when a well known believer falls into public scandal or sin? What does what does the world say? They shout, hypocrite. You see, you can't you can't trust any of them, you can't believe anything they say. Such hypocrites, such hypocrisy. It seems like you you expect our life to match our beliefs. And I would just say we we agree with that. The Bible agrees with that. So, so, So we agree on that together. So what does Paul mean by do not associate or do not even eat with such a person? This is referring to a deliberate maintenance of friendship with someone that's persisting in blatant sin. So let's say you know someone who's in the middle of an affair. You confront the person and they don't repent. They haven't listened to you. And now, next day, they're just like, hey, you want to go have lunch? Watch the game together? I mean, that, that should feel strange to you. It's not healthy to act like everything's okay when it's not okay. And it's really easy to focus on sexual sin, but look what else Paul includes here. He includes greed, idolatry, reviling, that's being verbally abusive, swindling, committing fraud, drinking too much, I've never heard of anyone being disciplined for being too greedy or drinking too much. But Paul says all of these things are fair game because they point back. If someone has this pattern in their life, it points back to an unrepentant posture towards God. So it's not a matter of, oh, this sin is so heinous, so the church is going to respond in this way, but it's a matter of this heart posture towards God and towards the church that says I don't care what you say I'm going to do whatever I want to do and when someone has a life that's unrepentant in that way that's what's being addressed here now listen as we as we close today none of this is going to make I know this is a hard topic and there could be people in this room that have a lot of church baggage and you think, this is not the sermon I needed to hear today. And I understand that. But none of this is gonna make any sense to us unless you see Jesus not just as Savior, but Savior and Lord. It's true that he's our Savior. He is our Savior, but he's also our Lord. Lord. And so the question we have to wrestle with is, is he Lord of your life in addition to being Savior? I think you and I, we struggle with sin, but is your life characterized by repentance? It's not an issue of just whether or not we fall into sin, but how we respond, how how you respond matters. Do you respond in repentance? Do you live your life not as some joyless existence, but... Like one big Passover feast celebration, celebrating your freedom from sin, do you live your life from this new identity? Do we seek to be salt and light to those around us? You know, for salt to make an impact, it needs contact. And being light means that we have to have some contact with darkness. That's the reality for us as the church. David Prime, he writes... There is a great difference between the world being in the church and the church being in the world. The world is not to gain any hold in the church by its attitudes and standards, but the church is to be in the world, affecting it for for good. That is why its difference from the world is so important. We are to be in the world as our Savior was. It is possible to love people without loving or countenancing their sins. God, thank you for your word Thank you for how your word opens us up to be exposed before you, but so that we can turn in repentance and turn towards your, your grace and mercy. God, I know there's so many different stories in this room. Maybe people have been treated in an unjust, harsh way when they shouldn't have been. And there's some baggage. I pray that you would you would heal that. I pray that there be forgiveness sought there. God, I also pray for anyone here this morning that is just living and walking and, and turning away from you right now. I pray that you'd bring conviction, bring about repentance. God, we know that the aim is to save, the aim is to restore. And God, I pray that happens. I pray that there are conversations to take place as a result of today friend to friend, believer to believer, where they can go and say, hey, listen, I'm, I'm concerned. And I pray the words would be heard and there'd be repentance and growth and someone living in alignment with you and your will and your kingdom. God, would you give us hearts that, that want that kind of relationship in the body of Christ God, help us to see the body as truly that, a body. That we're not disconnected. That we are interwoven. That if if one part of the body is, is hurting, that we're all hurting. God, help us to see each other in that way, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And God, help us to treat each other as family. Just like you'd want us to. We pray this in your name. Amen.